Welcome to the Home Lab Show, episode 89, Rocky Linux interview. So this is going to be a fun topic. We're going to talk about Rocky Linux, what it is, and some details about it. And we have a guest that will be on here to help really bring that together for us. And me and Jay are pretty excited about this. We, we like oh, yeah. some of these interviews. We hope to do a few more with uh, experts in the field. And I'm going to throw it out there that our guest is definitely an expert in Rocky Linux. I think that's fair to say. Fair to say. Um, I am, for those of you watching the live show, I'm jealous because I did get a Rocky Linux shirt as well. So did Jay, uh, but I'm not wearing it. I, sh I didn't think to grab the other one. I left it at my uh, office, but nonetheless, this is still going to be a fun interview. I want to get our sponsor mentioned real quick, and that is Linode. Yes, they've been sponsoring the show pretty much since the beginning. We've been really happy with them. This yep. show is hosted on Linode. So if you downloaded this, you visited the homelab.show website, you will actually be pulling all that data right from a Linode server that we manage and maintain. Uh, we really thank them for being a sponsor to show. And there's a link down below if you want to get started with Linode. It's a great place to host a lot of the projects we talk about on here. And uh, just want to thank them again for sponsoring the show and keeping things going. All right. Now let's bring in our guest, Greg. Hi there. How are you doing? Hello. I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, CIQ yep. Rocky Linux. So tell me, Greg, what exactly do you do at Rocky Linux? <laughs> <laughs> um, I do all the stuff that I think nobody else wants to do. Oh, also oh, wow. run the place. <laughs> the, the, the less fun stuff. Um, uh, you know, I, I used to be like a developer and, and my, my knowledge used to be relevant. Uh, when we started up Rocky, I realized that my age has caught up with me and, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm doing less of the development and tech uh, with with Rocky and more of just kind of the organization, dealing with legals, dealing with uh, foundation and community, et cetera. I, I think those are really, really important because uh, the, the best programmers aren't necessarily the ones who create an entire distribution because it's a lot more than just talent in terms of writing good code. It's all about everything around it. Um, you know, right. I, I kind of it's easy to parallel that with uh, Linus may be good at maintaining lots of the kernel stuff, but Linus is not the one running any of the major distributions <laughs> like, you know, we thank him for his contributions. He's doing exactly what he's really talented at doing. But running everything else is actually it's one of those when you I, I look at it, it's daunting to me to go, wow, like, how do you start a whole distribution and all that? That's yeah, uh, that's a big that's a big task. <laughs> In, in our case, it was um, it was actually fairly interesting. Uh, we, I just posted a comment to a blog, and the next thing I know, in about a month and a half, we've got ten thousand people asking how they can be part of it. It was wow. pretty pretty <laughs> surreal, actually. Wow, and I can't even barely get my son to clean his room. <laughs> Here you are getting ten thousand people to help you out. That's a, that's very impressive. It was solving a, a kind of big pain point, and I think that's really what what it was about. Um, if, if it was right on the coattails of the announcement that CentOS is changing its, its, its focus and direction. And, um, I think if I would have done it, you know, an hour before or, or a day before it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have gotten any, <laughs> any interest. Well, you never know. you got 10,000 people. I'm sure there'd be a, a, at least a few. Yeah. I think this is interesting because we talk a lot about this on channels and any Linux discussion so frequently revolves around all the, you know, lineage leading back to Debian. That's just the popular one out there, Ubuntu right. being that. And then from, you know, you can spider out of a family tree of all the things related to Ubuntu. But when it comes to the enterprise market and 
Red Hat, just they were there first. They, they were the first distribution most of us cut our teeth on. If you happen to be starting in the 90s, that's where you started, was on Red Hat. Um, yeah. And it's really embedded because of their support and everything else into the enterprise market. Lots of the tools that we use and, or I should say projects we use, such as XCPNG being a favorite of mine, you know, they base them on CentOS. So that announcement hit hard um, more so than people may realize to the enterprise environments that look for not the fanciest latest features, but a very stable, secure base by which to keep building their product and going forward on there. So right place, right time. You're definitely right about that. But, uh, How's your feelings on supporting all this enterprise stuff and being the way forward for a lot of it? <laughs> well, my my background has been predominantly in in enterprise and and to be blunt, very stagnant um, portion of the ecosystem, which is, and I don't mean that as a negative at all. There's reasons yeah. for it, but in high performance computing, uh, where I cut my teeth and spent most of my my career, uh, we we don't just like do upgrades. Like you know, we've got potentially hundreds or thousands of applications that we've custom compiled for your operating system that's running on thousands of nodes. That's not something that it's like you're just going to do a, you know, a DNF upgrade on, right? You, you have to be very careful on or, you, or do a whole distribution update on. You have to be very careful. We need something that has a very long life because we're not going to be doing that upgrade very often at all. So from my perspective, the idea of something that rolls fast or moves fast is not something that's, that's going to meet my needs. I yeah. think this is a uh, new user challenge as well. We, you know, this is the home lab show, but me and Jay and yourself here, we all have a lot of enterprise experience and we value in the enterprise as so does the people that often contract us extreme stability. And not just because there's a small minor new shiny feature that got there. It doesn't mean we just, Hey, let's rebuild the app to the new thing. And just because it's there or updates for the sake of updates, it's all, all about right. that stability, security, a long-term running because there's a lot at stake when a server goes down or a hypervisor doesn't start up because we added some new feature that maybe we'll use in the feature, uh, but don't need right now. But we go, but we wanted to compile the latest version of this because it's new. <laughs> we like new and shiny. Well, to an extent, I guess, but not, yeah. not in some places we, we really just kind of want things to be status quo. Yeah. I've got a funny story. Um, so I spent a long time in my career at Department of Energy at Lawrence Berkeley Lab. One of the projects I worked on was the Yucca Mountain Project. And the Yucca Mountain Project was a nuclear uh, holding facility for the for the waste that we were generating. And they they had this very long-term project to kind of figure out like what's the what's the adverse effects of of hosting, you know, all this nuclear data inside of a mountain and and what's that going to do? So lots of computation was being done. And when they qualified that computational code. They they literally locked the operating system down to I couldn't even upgrade SSH. Like Ooh, any change wow. in the operating system would have required a reclassification or requalification on all of the applications that were that they were running on. And so it got to the point where it was like, okay, CVE hit, CVE hit, okay, security issue, what not, whatnot. All right. At this point, we just have to firewall off that system from everything else because we can't <laughs> upgrade it. We can't do anything on it. But that's that's maybe extreme, but that's kind of typical in the enterprise space. Like right. depending on where you are in that spectrum, you can't just make updates easily. Yeah, you would think that that uh, they would know that because they didn't give anyone much of any notice about what was happening to CentOS, knowing that 
you know, their clientele or the people that use the distribution kind of really wants advanced notice. And they're also the type that'll be on CentOS 5 for probably the next five years without telling anyone. And now all of a sudden they're just going to like um, go to CentOS Stream all of a sudden just because that's the new normal. Like I, I can't even believe they thought that's something people would gravitate to given their audience. But here we are. I think CentOS Stream really solves a, a, a good area within within the ecosystem but the problem is, is that it does it's not what centos what everybody's come to love with centos and come to rely on with right. centos um but it is solving a huge a huge need which is uh you know the community involvement closer to enterprise linux right we got fedora but fedora is kind of far away from where enterprise linux is in terms right. of um you know stability and 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 whatnot but CentOS Stream is is much closer to that, and this gives the community this ability to to have input into what's mm -hmm. going into Enterprise Linux and and Red Hat. Oh yeah, it, there's definitely a lot of value, but I think it it's more or less like surprise. You know, that's going to be the new thing for everyone, and it, it's like the people that were already using it will be just fine on it. But for those that you know, it doesn't fit their needs or they don't want to go that direction. That's a little awkward. But then, you know, we have Rocky Linux now, so it's not so bad. Now, um, kind of going back to the story a little bit, you post on a forum. Now we have Rocky Linux. Let's talk about what happened in between. So how do you decide you're going to be the community leader and put all this together? Because, you know, we've all posted on forums. Wouldn't it be cool if there was something else? And but the next step is where the, the real work takes place. <laughs> yeah. So I think I think Jay kind of touched on the the nail on the head, which is, um, you know, this 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 caused a major pain point uh, across the ecosystem, as organizations were standardized on CentOS, and all of a sudden CentOS just changed. Um, rather, it went end of life, and the new project CentOS Stream is kind of continuing and getting the most of the focus. Um, created a major pain point on the blog that was written where this was announced. There was almost a thousand comments, and I challenge you to find any that's positive. I read the comments, and they are they they, they there's hilarious comments, very angry comments, like from all different directions. And it's one of those things where I feel like if you've been following Linux, you kind of know what the comments are going to be already before you look at them. Then you just get confirmation as soon as you start diving in. But it's absolutely what you said. And um, so when I when I announced on that blog as a comment, hey, I'm thinking of redoing this. And if anybody wants to come and join, I'm over here in this HPC Slack. And we went from a fairly small number of people that were already there to literally 10,000 plus wow. within a month and a half. And I think the majority of those people tried DMing me directly. Um, <laughs> let, me, let me share, like going from zero to, to 10,000 is an unmanageable problem. Like uh, it was like so overwhelming. Um, and we were on the free tier of Slack. So if you're familiar with the free tier of Slack, you get 10,000 free messages before you, you buffer overflow basically. Uh -oh. <laughs> and so 10,000 messages when you have 10,000 people who are all active and new to a channel goes by like that. Like yeah. I would be scrolling down Slack and I'd see messages come in. And by the time I get there, I see it. It says I got new messages. I click on it. And Slack's like, you know, you've exhausted the 10,000 messages, you know, you know, pay to get to see this message. And so I was missing things because I couldn't get to it fast enough. Um, I had messages on LinkedIn. I had mess emails coming in and I just I couldn't keep up. So one of the things um, that we did was uh, is we basically said, OK, let's start breaking channels out 
into functional groups of where we know we need to focus on within creating an operating system. So we had you know, development, release engineering, we had um, uh, marketing, and not marketing, well, community, I guess, more like, um, uh, you know, socials, and we created all these things, merchandise, somebody came to the table and said, we want to help with merchandise. And so merchandise was there. And all of a sudden, all of these different groups started running in parallel. And within each one of these groups, uh, a hierarchy started forming in terms of people that naturally assumed leadership positions, and people that naturally assumed kind of uh, individual contributor positions. And all of a sudden we had this meritocracy, just, it was a almost near perfect meritocracy where nobody knew anybody. Nobody had any idea who they were, you know, what their background was. Uh, most people were using avatars or aliases. So you didn't know anything about them. And we started to see a, a structure forming. And I did my best to basically just kind of guide each one of the different groups and the next thing I know is we actually have a leadership structure in place. We have, um, you know, a group of people that are taking on certain responsibilities to get stuff done. And then we we basically then just started organizing ourselves. It took us four months to organize ourselves and to build the base infrastructure for creating an operating system. It took us uh, two months to build the operating system once we've done that. And it took us a month of testing and um, whatnot before we actually released. So it was a seven-month total sprint to get the operating system released, and um, it was it was a lot of work. But it was also distributed across a fantastic team of of individuals who came and wanted to be part of this. I wow. and I think that's important. The community engagement is great, and that's where you really leveraged it and fostered it to create a thing it's just um you know it's, it's it's just kind of a fun story how you they went from this idea to product so to speak or project i should say because it's open source um and being community driven like that that is just an awesome story it's almost like it comes full circle because of you know when linus mentioned on a message board about the linux thing mm -hmm. and you know the project and now rocky linux starts as a comment in a forum post it's like <laughs> maybe if i just want to start building a project or have some kind of success i just need to start posting forum posts i guess <laughs> seemed like it worked out pretty well you know um again i i think it was because there was just a huge gaping hole in terms of where the ecosystem is now in terms of operating systems and it was a pain point for for everybody um and so coming forth and and standing up and just just saying you know if anybody wants to do this you know let's go let's go talk about it over here and then to see all these people want to be part of that um it was definitely it was it was, it was luck it was um just timing and whatnot but it was also i mean you know red hat has done a lot for the community that's been fantastic but this this is not a prime example of one of them. Um, I think this was right. this seemed like a very unilateral decision. Didn't seem like the community had much much input into that, um, because if they did, I think they would have had some foresight that this would be a very negative, negatively responded, you know, outcome. Yeah, I think that's probably to be expected. But sometimes, I don't know, you know, what happened behind closed doors at Red Hat because I wasn't there. But sometimes I wonder these companies just come out with these ideas or, or this direction. Oh, everyone's going to love it. They're going to be right behind us because they just love it so much. And this is going to be awesome. But I, I have, have to have a feeling that they knew there would be rebuttals and there'd be some opposition to it. So um, it, I feel like it's just a weird situation all the way around because it changed the Linux landscape so much. I mean, it's kind of one of those things where we think a distribution is going to stay the same forever. 
But then when it's not, oh, wow, uh, nobody saw that coming. What do we do? And some people can maybe embrace sent to a stream, but others, maybe they may not want to do that. And if they don't want to do that, then what do they do? And then you post a forum message and, you know, the answer comes out of that. That's just so cool. Now, how's your uh, enterprise engagement been? I mean, I, I look on your page and I do see names we might familiar with, like VMware on there and some other big names, AWS. Um, how has the enterprise reception been to this, like looking at it as a replacement for some of those that base things on CentOS? Well, I think part of the reception uh, that we got, both from community as well as enterprise, actually came from something that we just kind of touched on a little bit, which is... Um, how open source projects can be pivoted in a way that's not necessarily for the community. Um, I mean, CentOS is by no means the first um, the first open source project that was pivoted by a commercial agenda, right? We don't know what the commercial agenda was, but and it was it's not going to be the last. As a matter of fact, there there's been there's been at least two that I know of since CentOS that were very, fairly dramatic um, within the environment. Um, and but this goes all the way back to I think MongoDB was the first time this kind of really was a big deal. And after CentOS, there was Elasticsearch, which was also end of life due to commercial Redis. Um, yep. I mean, there, there's there's a bunch. They're they're looting me because I still need to drink more coffee. Yet. <laughs> uh, but there, there was a bunch of them. And uh, one thing that I heard of when I was talking to to enterprises about you know what what they're doing, what do they what do they need was they need stability. They need to know that what happened with CentOS, um, while CentOS was a fantastic operating system, this is not a slight to CentOS at all. It's right. not going to happen again. Like we need the benefits of what CentOS did right, but also the safeguards in terms of to make sure that this exact thing doesn't happen again. Right. And one thing that became very clear, and that is, I mean, I'm I'm a CEO of a of a of a you know, up and coming company called CIQ, and CIQ can't own this. Right. I don't want to own it. I don't want to control it. I don't want to hold it hostage from a CIQ perspective. It has to be community. Now, what's the best way of doing that? And we, we came up with some different different models and the, and the teams had various different discussions about this. Um, and something that a lot of people don't realize is CentOS originally came out of a nonprofit 501c3. And a 501c3 is an actual nonprofit. Um, it's a charity. Um, the IRS doesn't usually give 501c3s anymore to open source projects, or so they usually do 501c6s, which are different. But um, they don't. Like it came out of that 501c3. Like a 501c3 or a nonprofit is not necessarily the best structure to protect an open source project, as we saw with CentOS. And there's been there's been other examples of this as well. Um, Freenode as well, which a lot of people know of. Oh yeah. Uh, before actually came out of um, a 501c3. It was the peer directed projects. There was another C, I can't remember what it said for now. Um, but it was a nonprofit out of Texas. And it, you know, does do nonprofits really protect open source projects? And I, you know, I, I don't think so. I think there's better structures that we can use. And so I created the Rocky Enterprise Software Foundation. I promise this is a long way around of answering your question. <laughs> I created the Rocky Enterprise Software Foundation uh, with the rest of the team to figure out like how, what's the best structure that we can use to protect this. And um, we came up with a model there that I wouldn't say it's drastically different than others, but um, I think there are some some fairly important distinctions like no single company can ever 
um, can ever control this. Like we have rules about how many companies uh, or what percentage of any company can be on the board. Like if you have more than one third present, you quorum is not made. Um, mm. We never sell board seats. That's a surefire way of uh, basically having companies buy into manipulation of your of your project. Right. Many open source projects and foundations and nonprofits do this. I don't think it's the best for the project. I think that's a way of um, making money for for a foundation, and I don't think that's what's best for the community. Uh, so we never sell board seats. Board seats are always provided and and given and granted and voted, I should say, based on their um, the merit of the person of the individual that's coming in to represent. Um, but this model is what immediately attracted a number of different uh, big companies. So you brought up VMware. Um, AWS contacted us like shortly after I announced this this vision and what it is that we're doing, and basically said, you know, we want to be part of this. And wow. um, they gave they offered us a huge amount of you know help in terms of of building this, and then Google came up and basically, you know, offered us as well, a huge amount of help and support in doing this. Um, Azure, exactly the same thing, VMware, Naver Cloud, and the list just kept continuing and growing. Um, now we've even have sponsors that are not listed on the website because they're actually, they don't want to come out as, as saying that they're competing with, with IBM or Red Hat um, hmm. or, or doing something negative there. So we also have sponsors that are not you know, and, and helping the project, but they're not doing it necessarily completely publicly. I hope one day that changes, but yeah. uh, at the moment we, we have a huge amount of support, like a ridiculous amount of support. And it's just been so fantastic to be part of this and just see all of this grow and see all this come together. And I think it's really important what you touched on with the structure. Um, we started talking a little bit before the show and I, I stopped myself because I obviously want to save it for the show. But when I'm looking at something I want to use, because we are the home lab show here. So we start there, but a lot of us, our goals usually as the home labbers are to get a job in enterprise, or maybe you already work in enterprise and tinkering is fun in home lab. But when you really look at something, if I want to build a project, I want to start um, free PBX example. What do you want to base a phone system on? Well, it matters that foundation you start your project on going forward because you need that long-term support. So I need to know that that project will be available, that that project will going forward. You touched on Elasticsearch. That's created some issues with some of the products we use because they had that baked in and they switched it now to open. Is it open search? I think it's whatever the replacement is, because you're right. There's, there's corporate interests at play. And when, if there's not a good structure to hold it together as the community project, we lose it as a community project. And this has actually happened. Um, like you said, more, I haven't had enough coffee to remember all of them, but boy, the list is long. <laughs> and yeah. I, I think that's, it's just really important to think about that from the long term, um, because especially if you fall in love with the project, you're like, Hey, I hope this whole distribution or this thing that's built on top of this other thing lasts for a while. But if there's no good structure to hold it together, there's no path forward long-term corporate interest by board seats, corporate interest, um, will use it for their own interests and or to some of these corporate companies especially in the hyperscaler world they have the kind of money where they can just mess up things and go eh i'm done with this toy and sorry i broke your thing community we're going back over here <laughs> so, oh my god yeah. like, we sometimes still don't know what exactly the intent was a few years later and it's like i don't know someone had an idea someone changed your mind um community and broken for a little while <laughs> yeah we've seen that yeah mm -hmm. definitely but what's it like to to build this? I mean, because it's 
I don't know if people really understand the weight of managing a distribution. You know, it's mm. it's not something people generally say, hey, I want to start a distribution today as they wake up. I mean, maybe people do that, but um, it, it's got to be such a massive undertaking to maintain this. What's the build infrastructure like for this? Well, the, uh, there's two questions there. I'm going to address the first one, which okay. is first, and I'll address the second. But the first one is um, it takes a masochist to do this. To <laughs> um, and, and here's why. Like, if you look across the ecosystem, like, you know, we, we have so many religions in our ecosystem, right? Vim versus Emacs, you know, Perl versus Python. I mean, it, the, you, you could just go on. Nothing prepares you for the amount of religion to begin to get stuck in the religious crusade oh, of yes. Linux distribution yeah. religion. And um, I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of this, just like everyone I think yeah. is to some extent. And um, it, it's, it's to, to, to now all of a sudden, to, literally, I feel like I have a target on my back. Like I'm getting attacked left and right. I'm getting people sticking up for me. I'm getting people talking. And I watch some of these threads and I'm like, I, I see how conspiracy theories can form because I'm watching wow. conspiracy theories happen about me. Like, oh, I'm going to go sell Rocky Linux to Red Hat next. And I'm going to go and due to its structure, you know, uh, I'm the owner. And as a result, it's going to succumb to all of these things. And it, I mean, it's like, that's not that's not me. It, Go yeah. talk to people that have worked with me before spreading those rumors. You know, do so do a little bit of diligence because you're actually talking about a real person. And it, yeah. it kind of sucks like to have all these people talking about me and, and other people on the team and trying to discredit it just because it goes against their religion, right? There goes against their their personal preference. That's the first message I wanted to get out there. Um, but also I wanted now to address your second question. Well, I want to add one more thing. This is one thing I like about doing these interviews. I, I think we come across because uh, me and Jave, as we engage with the community, we try not to be divisive at all. We like all the different mm -hmm. distributions and we wanted to humanize a lot of this. Like there's people behind all these things that are going on here. We try to keep that very, you know, real, like there's people and projects and that's what we're talking about here. Um, there's, there's a lot of reality to it. It's not just some, you know, it's easy when you can disassociate yourself and just see some posts or a website and go, Oh, they're doing this thing or they're going to sell to this company. Um, but no, this is real people. And that's why we're having this conversation. That's part of the reason we have you on here to talk yeah. about it publicly. <laughs> that is so awesome. I, I love that. Thank you for inviting me again. Cause I really want to just, you know, I don't know, help. It sounds so cliche, but just help people see that, uh, you know, I am a real person. Stop talking negative about me, please. Get to know me. Like, yeah. I'm so easy to reach. I'm, I have an open door to everybody who wants. Um, Just I'm not 10,000 at once. There's Slack limitations. There is that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, to, to the second question, um, what does the infrastructure look like? This is a really kind of deep question as well. Because to go, I mean, when, when CentOS first started, it was literally like shell scripts running on on somebody's you know personal server or personal workstations building rpms in a while loop i mean that was how simplistic <laughs> wow. first versions were then we had an initial again initial versions of centos there was some build infrastructure put into place but it was literally done by individuals a lot of it by hand i'd say the majority of it by hand so when you think about the security aspects of this the way you have to handle that is, well, you have to have a small team. 
And that small team has to be 100% trusted with the keys to the kingdom, right? Um, you can't have anybody who can potentially put in a Trojan, do something wrong, do, do something malicious, because it's literally getting out to every single system, that's every single person that's running that. So you have to really control that, um, that exposure surface there. So um, with CentOS, it started off initially just with, it's a small team. Other people asked if they can help, if they can be part of this, but it's kind of hard to, to let other people help and be part of that core development team. So with, with Rocky, one of the first things we all said and agreed on was we have to figure out how to do this at scale such that the community at large can, can contribute to this. Uh, one, of our, one of our mantras that we've already kind of talked a little bit about is no single company can hold this hostage. And so no keys are owned by a company. Our secure boot shim, we started from scratch to go get from you know, Microsoft and the powers that be so that, so that the RESF, the Rocky Enterprise Software Foundation, has our own secure boot shims. No company can take that away. Um, uh, our signing keys, I mean, domain, everything across the board had to be owned by the community and has to be controlled by that community. So that includes the infrastructure. So we had to create infrastructure and create build and, uh, uh, you know, tools and tooling and whatnot all from scratch. And that took us a while to do. It took us four months exactly, almost exactly, to do. And so we built all of that up. Now, the first version, Rocky 8, started with the Fedora build uh, environment, which is Koji, Punji, uh, modular build system, and et cetera. Um, we started with that. Uh, that system was designed not really in a cloud native way. It was designed to be built on or for a single cluster. So you have a rack of systems, you've got a build cluster, and it's kind of more designed towards that. We didn't have a rack of systems. We have cloud. So we wanted to build everything in the cloud. So, you know, we replicated a, a static system uh, in the cloud, which is not ideal, but that's how we approached it. Uh, because we wanted to make sure that the output binaries of what we were creating were compatible and that the community at large can come in and contribute. What we learned from that is, I mean, Koji's fantastic, but it didn't really meet our needs perfectly. So we started building a cloud native build system and we created something called Peridot. And we weren't sure at first exactly how this, you know, everything was going to work. And uh, so we did build it, you know, initially, and I know that this is not typical open source, but we did build it initially kind of in a closed way, just with, with some developers working on a private repo. Um, and then as it started to mature, we started bringing in, you know, some, there was some more people that, that, that had visibility into it. And then, but, but we have a rule that no release of Rocky Linux can ever be built using not open source software. Somebody mm. else needs to go and be able to build and replicate what we've done. And again, this is for the community to make sure that we are always um, a stable solution because if something happens to us, I want to make sure somebody else can pick up from where we left off. So everything has to be completely open, transparent, and documented. And I'll pause right there for a second because this is this is the splitting hairs of open source that can be very aggravating where there's a lot of companies that say they're open source, but they just don't give you any of the build pipeline information. So they just give you a lot of source code, but there's no way to to actually build the software to an easy repeatable binary. And even in Debian, this has been a long time challenge building those repeatable binaries. So you can say, yes, yeah. this is truly the code and this is the outcome. And it's easy for a single like executable to build that, but an operating system is an entirely another level of that. Uh, so I think it's really important that you're doing that type of work because mm -hmm. uh, this is where, I mean, 
I almost want to ask sometimes, is it open source? Because just because I have the code, I can slap the open source name on it. But that build pipeline is arguably as critical a component of it because um, I can't it goes through a secret machine that grinds up the sausage and outputs it. Trust me, it's exactly the code that went in. Or is it? <laughs> yeah, I've worked on a build system or trying to migrate uh, or reverse engineer, I should say, a build system for a project that was abandoned. And it, it was a really tough task. And that was just one binary. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was that was a long time. But yeah, I could totally understand that being a lot of work. So I, I, I'm of the strong belief that open source software, especially GPL uh, software, which is which basically says that any derivatives of that source code must also be uh, adhere to the, the license of the GPL. Uh, I believe that that includes binaries. Uh, as a binary is a derivative of source code. So hmm. from from that perspective, I don't believe binary should ever be restricted as well. Um, so when you look at that build pipeline and you look at everything that comes out, like the whole thing has to be open source. The whole thing has to be repeatable. And again, coming out of science um, and the scientific community, like repeatable science is is critical. If you don't have yeah. repeatable science, does it is it really, you know, is it is it validated? Is it really science? So it has to be repeatable. It has to be open in such a way that other people can get the same results. We actually had a validation point. There's another Linux distribution, which is not very popular um, uh, outside of China, um, but Circle Linux uses all of Rocky Linux build infrastructure to recreate, and they have a whole other Linux distribution. And mm. you know, kudos to them you know, for, for doing that. And I, I love that they did it for a couple of reasons. One is it completely validates that vision that we had, which is this needs to be repeatable so other people can do this. And I've also now heard of at least one company that has a derivative of Rocky Linux by using the exact same tooling that we do. So um, this this vision is, is, I think, very important to ensure the long-term stability of the operating system. And we also have other facets as well, like you have to be able to, um, we, we're always distributing all of the, um, the requirements for every build, every package. So every package has build requirements. And in many cases, um, like Red Hat didn't always distribute all of the build requirements. So it made it very hard to repeat the builds, to repeat the binaries of what's in the, in the operating system, because those were what we call hidden dependencies. Um, mm. CentOS, in early days of CentOS, we vowed that, that we would never hide, hide these build requirements, these, these, these hidden dependencies, we would never hide them. Uh, we'd always make them available. Um, later in CentOS's life, you know, it did come up that some of these things were being hidden again, uh, after, you know, Red Hat acquired the project. And, and again, th this is possibly some writing on the wall that things were changing. Um, but we want to make sure with Rocky Linux that we never do that. So we put together, um, our, our charter and everything else in such a way that, um, you know, it's going to be persisted. And we've actually even talked about, uh, I think we need to host that a PDF or some output of that, um, that charter on our mirrors. So every single mirror in the community will always have, like, this is a way of persisting it. So it can never just vanish and go away, um, which is what happened with, with some of these early kind of ideas with CentOS and some of our early goals. Um, I it feels like they just kind of went away. Um, so I want to make sure that that Rocky Linux is is always here to be stable for everybody. And we were talking about the build system. If you don't mind, I'll bounce back over there really quick. Yeah. What we yeah. did, 
super awesome. Like we, we basically said, okay, we got Koji build system. It's kind of defined for a single system. It's hard to replicate. It's very complicated. It took us four months to do. Well, not entirely just that also organization, but it took us a while to do. So how do we make this easier? How do we simplify this process and go completely cloud native? And that was where we spent a lot of time focusing. And the result of that is Peridot. And Peridot is a completely cloud native Kubernetes-based build system. I mean, um, we're not quite there yet in terms of simplicity of installing, but the goal is you can Helm install Peridot and immediately, boom, you now have your, your, your build system and you can th start throwing packages at it. Uh, you wow. can start doing Git operations against it and start building you know, packages for your operating system. Whether somebody's doing that in a, in a commercial way via mm -hmm. you know, a vendor is, is adding on to, to Rocky Linux via Peridot or, <coughs> excuse me, or if somebody wants to uh, just go and recreate it, just to make sure that you know there, there's there's redundancy within the community, which I think is a good thing. Um, yep. This 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 gives everyone that confidence of stability, and um, so we released Peridot, and um, Rocky Linux nine was built on Peridot, Rocky Linux eight was built on Koji, and we're always talking about do we move Rocky Linux eight from Koji to Peridot. We, we want to make sure, again, in the vein of stability and, and nothing changing and nothing kind of rocking the boat, that we don't cause any sort of disturbance in the uh, eight track. Oh, that was a funny slip. That uh, was. It's a, <laughs> in the eight track yeah, of the eight tracks in your home lab. <laughs> um, but uh, we want to make sure that we don't like interrupt that or do anything that may that may make that negative um, for, for our users or, or change or break anything. So. Um, you know, but, but we are talking about it because it would so simplify the maintenance, um, of, of Rocky Linux version eight. Um, so maybe at some point we'll see that, um, we're also seeing other things coming out for eight as well. Um, so FIPS, so my company, um, and this is one of the cool areas where, um, having a, having an open source project that a company doesn't control, the company has to add value if they're going to do anything worthwhile. So we're doing something called FIPS. I'm not sure if you're familiar with FIPS, yes. but. So we're doing FIPS um, compliance um, validation on Rocky Linux 8.6. We're almost done with that. We're getting that over to the government labs for validation here shortly. Um, but to be blunt, that's a million dollar investment right there. Wow. That's a massive undertaking. And we're giving that away to the community. Like that's not even going in CIQ's name. That's going in the RESF's name for wow. the community. And so we're giving away this, this gigantic thing. Um, and we're doing the exact same thing for nine. Uh, as well. Uh, so this is the, the, these are important things like in my mind to make sure that the community is getting the, the benefit and, of. And this is a challenge that actually disqualifies a lot of open source. So for those of you not familiar or haven't heard the term FIPS, F-I-P-S, it is a mandate of which algorithms in a very exacting way, like this is what you're going to be using in the product and you will not be using other algorithms in here. Um, flipping on the FIPS, compl FIPS compliance is usually a government contractor. If you're part of DFARS, you're part of any of the you know Department of Defense stuff that you do, you're going to, you're company's going to have to say that the software and the things we have are compliant with that. So it's, yeah, it, it, it's not, it, it's almost like I've, 
one in my years of being an open source advocate, it's sometimes the disqualifier uh, why you can't use something is it may not have been FIPS compliant uh, and it may be completely secure. It's not a security thing. It is a compliance thing of, nope, we only right. allow you to use this algorithm, but this algorithm is actually more hardened and newer, but that doesn't matter. It's not, it's not on the FIPS list. I think I described that fairly well. <laughs> the, the one thing I may add is the FIPS process is also about a year. It's about nine months, yeah. 12 months to get done, which means if oh. we're going to validate a particular version like 8.6, which is what we're doing, by the time the FIPS is done, 8.7 and maybe even 8.8 .8 is, 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 coming, is coming out. So it's a constant kind of catch-up game. And government agencies and a lot of corporate agencies that require that level of confidence in their crypto within their within their platform um, have to make a decision like how you know do they want to roll that out? Most organizations say, okay, 8.6 was was FIPS qualified. We're going to make a big leap that 8.7, 8.8, 8.9, 10, etc., whatever is all also going to be FIPS um validated even though it's not pedantically still fips validated because they val validate the binaries um they, it gives them the confidence that they need to feel to feel good about that operating system or that platform yeah hmm. and that that's a yeah once you get into the enterprise market that's a box that has to be checked quite a bit <laughs> yeah and I, I do you feel like you're going to get an influx of users once that's done um i think we already have um even uh so uh, Hyperion Research, which is an analyst uh, organization, um, recently did a um, uh, or a survey to organizations uh, across the board, and they found that I think the number was thirty-eight. I can look at. No, I'm not going to look it up right now. But it was near forty percent of government organizations are already on Rocky Linux. Wow! So that's got to feel really great. To it's it's that success. It's, it's it's massive. I mean, the uptake has just been it's just been crazy. It's been um, uh, their average across all, I think, was 20.4 percent of the ecosystem is already running on Rocky Linux. Um, wow. so, I mean, again, it's it's really is massive. Um, I, I can I'll pull that up and I'll send that over to you. And if you can share that out to the community, yeah, we'll throw it, we'll throw it in the show notes. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's massive. The amount of uptake that, that there's, there's been. And, um, I think enterprise organizations are really responding well to the idea and the vision of what the, the Rocky enterprise software foundation, RESF is set out to do, which is to better join and better unite open source communities and individual contributors to, uh, enterprise needs, uh, enterprise needs are not always in alignment with the community and to how, how to balance that is, is a, is a trick, right? It's a task. So, um, that's what the Rocky Enterprise Software Foundation was was designed to do. Uh, you know, we recently elected the RESF board, and we're about ready to have a update on the board structure coming out um, actually very soon now. And um, but just to give an example, Greg Croa Hartman, who maintains the Linux stable kernel, right? Mm -hmm. Linus Torvalds maintains the development kernel. Greg Croa Hartman maintains the stable kernel. Uh, he's on our board of directors. Um, Chris DeBona, who um, from Google. Uh, he was the person who was responsible for elite releasing things like Kubernetes and Android to the world. Um, he's on our board of directors and I mean, and, and lots of contributors to the project is on a board of directors, but those are two of our independents. Um, it's, it's fantastic to see how this has grown, but I think we've really 
we're really doing something that's important for the enterprise, specifically the professional IT um, communities. I'm sure there's like a, a countless number of people that are very thankful for that because it probably allowed people to go from, oh my God, what do we do in the boardroom to that? That's the way forward right there to actually have a solution. And um, I feel like for a lot of people, that was probably very relieving especially when it was uncertain, people didn't really understand the change and didn't understand why CentOS Stream is the new normal and all these other things. I think it's great to have some kind of a status quo, something to rely on, something, you know, a path forward that doesn't require changing your entire base to a completely unrelated distribution, which is even worse, I think. Exactly. So, yeah. Yep. yep, that would be a big undertaking. I mean, I, I know that I think Rocky Linux is on the consideration for the path forward at some point with XCPNG and uh, the team over at Vates there. And it's because I've had it's funny when I've seen because I talked to Oliver, who's the team lead. They're like, well, can't you guys just switch over to Debian? He's like, you don't understand how deeply embedded a hypervisor base OS that's very customized is. <laughs> you can't just rip it out and replace. It's got to be a lot of compatibility here. Like, Right. The infrastructure is built around it. So <laughs> the name of the Apache package isn't even the same. I mean, every little detail, every little thing you need to install is going to have either a different name or maybe a package could be split more in one than the other combined somewhere else. I mean, there's a lot of different moving pieces here. And I don't I don't think a lot of people understand the gravity. I think they understand in general that this is a lot of work. But I think and correct me if I'm wrong, unless you do the work, you can't really know what it's like, you know? Yeah. I would say that for sure. <laughs> yeah. Until you've actually built an entire distribution. You don't know how hard it is to build a distribution. <laughs> and it's gotten so much harder. I can validate for that. It's gotten <laughs> so much more difficult. Um, yeah. Early versions of CentOS was, was nowhere near as difficult as it is now. Oh, wow. Yeah. I can imagine a lot more packages nowadays than we had before, for sure. Yeah. And securing that build pipeline, not just documenting it, but also securing it, like you mentioned, uh, you, you can't go a week without another insert name of, you know, pipeline that got something injected, some type of typo squatting. Um, it's it's a constant security threat and I deal a lot with security. So it's just like, uh, it's, an, it's like dealing with the, the threats of the currently broken software, let alone someone slipping in a breakage in the software or some potential vulnerability. I'm like, no, this is hard. We don't want a supply chain attack. Thank you very much. Yeah. One of the things that we wanted to do with Peridot is to really ensure that that supply chain security um, is is validated and transparent. So you can you can really trust that. Um, and and all the way from, you know, the, the file that ends up on your operating system through the RPM, which which exists now through the validation of the RPM that knows it came from us and it hasn't been tampered with. But then how do you know that, you know, how it was built? How do you know that there's any validity behind that? And right now, generally speaking, there's 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 not a huge amount of validity on that. So um, right. that's one of our goals is to make sure that, you know, there's full SBOM uh, validation all the way through the pipeline. So anybody can go from a file that's on their system, right? Is that suspect? We don't know. Well, it's signed by the RPM. It's signed by the organization who, who released it. And here's the environment that they build that package. Let's reproduce that, that SBOM and come up with, you know, let's do a full validation check on that SBOM. Like that doesn't exist today. Uh, but that's one of the things that Peridot is, is, making available at this point. Um, we're I, not quite there, but we're really close. You know, and I wish SBOM was further ahead, but boy, I um, I brought it up in a security conference and the number of 
uh, shockingly security people in the IT services space that hadn't even didn't even familiar with the term. And I'm like, yes, software bill of materials. We want to know the ingredients, how the software was made. And I mean, this is on the heels of Log4J when I brought it up at the conference going, did you know your product was built with Log4J? Or do you know what products were built with that dependency? And having a bill of materials is huge. And I think open source yeah. is way ahead of the curve in terms of advantage of being the better way to go in the path forward. I've been a long time advocate of it. It's getting proven more and more. So I'm glad you brought up SBOM. Like that's, it's not talked about enough. I'm like, it's 2023 right. people. This should be just part of what is included when you buy software or, or yeah. use software. I totally agree. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, very important. And it's only going to be more important going yep. forward. So. All right. Absolutely. Well, this was a lot of fun. Do you have any more questions, Jay's? We're ra- got reaching the top of the hour um, here. I mean, I probably have a zillion more, but I think uh, you know I've got to stop at some point. <laughs> yeah, well, and maybe we'll maybe we'll have to have on again and ask a zillion more questions. Jay also yeah. has another podcast that dives into Linux, so there's always uh, some opportunity to talk about uh, some more of these things, especially the security side of things. So, <laughs> yeah, there, there absolutely is, and maybe that's that that could be something. I'll uh, I'll, e- I'll email you about that. See if you're interested. Yeah. Absolutely. That sounds like a yep. lot of fun. And and this was this this conversation was a lot of fun. I, I really appreciate you both. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. No and thank problem. you for taking the time. Uh, this was great. And uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us. Take care and see you next episode. Thank you. Bye.